Section 14 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. A Roman Holiday, Part 1. It is certainly sweet to be merry at the right moment, but the right moment hardly seems to me the ten days of the Roman Carnival. It was my rather cynical suspicion, perhaps, that they wouldn't keep to my imagination the brilliant promise of legend, but I have been justified by the event, and have been decidedly less conscious of the festal influences of the season than of the inalienable gravity of the place. There was a time when the carnival was a serious matter, that is, a heartily joyous one, but thanks to the seven-league boots the Kingdom of Italy has lately donned for the march of progress in quite other directions the fashion of public revelry has fallen woefully out of step the state of mind and manners under which the carnival was kept in generous good faith i doubt if an american can exactly conceive he can only say to himself that for a month in the year there must have been things things considerably of humiliation it was comfortable to forget but now that Italy is made, the carnival is unmade. And we are not especially tempted to envy the attitude of a population who have lost their relish for play and not yet acquired to any striking extent an enthusiasm for work. The spectacle on the Corso had seemed to me on the whole an illustration of that great breach with the past of which Catholic Christendom felt the somewhat muffled shock in September 1870. A traveller acquainted with the fully papal Rome, coming back any time during the past winter, must have immediately noticed that something momentous had happened, something hostile to the elements of picture and colour and style. My first warning was that ten minutes after my arrival, I found myself face to face with a newspaper stand. The impossibility in the other days of having anything in the journalistic line that the Osservatore Romano and the Voce della Verità used to seem to me much connected with the extraordinary leisure of thought and stillness of mind to which the place admitted you. But now the slender piping of the voice of truth is stifled by the raucous note of eventide vendors of the Capitale, the Libertà, and the Pampula. And Rome, reading unexpurgated news, is another Rome indeed. For every subscriber to the Libertà, they may well be an antique masker and reveller less. As striking a sign of the new regime is the extraordinary increase of population. The Corso was always a well-filled street, but now it is a perpetual crush. I never cease to wonder where the newcomers are lodged, and how such spotless flowers of fashion as the gentlemen who stare at the carriages can bloom in the atmosphere of those camere mobilate of which I've had glimpses. This, however, is their own question, and bravely enough they meet it. They proclaimed somehow, to the first freshness of my wonder, as I say, that by force of numbers, 
Rome had been secularised. An Italian dandy is a figure visually to reckon with, but these goodly throngs of them scarce offered compensation for the absent Monsignori treading the streets in their purple stockings and followed by the solemn servants who returned on their behalf the bars of the meaner sort. For the morning gear of the cardinal's coaches that formerly glittered with scarlet and swung with the weight of the footmen clinging behind. For the certainty that you'll not, by the best of travellers' luck, meet the Pope sitting deep in the shadow of his great chariot with uplifted fingers, like some inaccessible idol in his shrine. You may meet the king, indeed, who is ugly, as imposingly ugly as some idols, though not so inaccessible. The other day, as I passed the Quirinal, he drove up in a low carriage with a single attendant, and a group of men and women who had been waiting near the gate rushed at him with a number of folded papers. The carriage slackened pace, and he pocketed their offerings with a business-like air, that of a good-natured man accepting handbills at a street corner. He was a monarch at his palace gate, receiving petitions from his subjects, being abjured to right their wrongs. The scene ought to have thrilled me, but somehow it had no more intensity than a woodcut in an illustrated newspaper. Homely, I should call it at most, admirably so certainly, for there were lately few sovereigns standing, I believe, with whom their people enjoyed these filial hand-to-hand relations. The king this year, however, has had as little to do with the carnival as the pope, and the innkeepers and Americans have marked it for their own. It was advertised to begin at half-past two o'clock of a certain Saturday, and punctually at the stroke of the hour, from my room across a wide court, I heard a sudden multiplication of sounds and confusion of tongues in the corso. I was writing to a friend for whom I cared more than for any mere romp, but as the minutes elapsed and the hubbub deepened, curiosity got the better of affection, and I remembered that I was really within eyeshot of an affair the fame of which had ministered to the daydreams of my infancy. I used to have a scrapbook with a coloured print of the starting of the bedizened wild horses, and the use of a library rich in keepsakes and annuals with a frontispiece commonly of a masked lady in a balcony, the heroine of a delightful tale further on. Agitated by these tender memories, I descended into the street. But I confess I looked in vain for a masked lady who might serve as a frontispiece, in vain for any object whatever that might adorn a tale. Masked and muffled ladies there were in abundance, but their masks were of ugly wire, perfectly resembling the little covers placed upon strong cheese in German hotels, and their drapery was a shabby waterproof with a hood pulled over their chignons. They were armed with great tin scoops or funnels, with which they solemnly shoveled lime and flour out of bushel baskets and down on the heads of the people in the street. They were packed into balconies all the way along the straight vista of the Corso, in which their calcareous shower maintained a dense, gritty, unpalatable fog.
The crowd was compact in the street, and the Americans in it were tossing back confetti out of great satchels hung round their necks. It was quite the you're another sort of repartee. And less seasoned than I had hoped with the airy mockery tradition hangs about this festival. The scene was striking, in a word, but somehow not as I had dreamed of its being. I stood regardful, I suppose, but with a peculiarly tempting blankness of visage, for in a moment I received half a bushel of flour on my too philosophic head. Decidedly, it was an ignoble form of humour. I shook my ears like an emergent diver, and had a sudden vision of how still and sunny and solemn, how peculiarly and undisturbedly themselves, how secure from any intrusion less sympathetic than one's own, certain outlying parts of Rome must just then be. The carnival had received its death blow in my imagination, and it has been ever since but a thin and a dusky ghost of pleasure that has glittered at intervals in and out of my consciousness. I turned my back accordingly on the corso, and wandered away to the grass-grown quarters delightfully free, even from the possibility of a fellow countryman. And so, having set myself an example, I have been keeping carnival by strolling perversely, along the silent circumference of Rome. I have doubtless lost a great deal. The Princess Margaret has occupied a balcony opposite the open space which leads into Via Condotti, and I believe, like the discreet princess she is, has dealt in no missiles but bonbons, bouquets, and white doves. I would have waited half an hour any day to see the Princess Margaret hold a dove on her forefinger, but I never chanced to notice any preparation for that effect. And yet, do what you will, you can't really elude the carnival. As the days elapse, it filters down into the manners of the common people, and before the week is over, the very beggars at the church doors seem to have gone to the expense of a domino. When you meet these specimens of dingy drollery capering about in dusky back streets at all hours of the day and night, meet them flitting out of black doorways between greasy groups that cluster about Roman thresholds, you feel that a love of pranks, the more vivid the better, must from far back have been implanted in the Roman temperament with a strong hand. An unsophisticated American is wonderstruck at the number of persons of every age and various conditions whom it costs nothing in the nature of an ingenuous blush to walk up and down the streets in the costume of a theatrical supernumerary. Fathers of families do it at the head of an admiring progenitor. Uncles and aunts and grandmothers do it. Well, the family does it with varying splendour but with the same good conscience. A pack of babies, the doubtless too self-conscious alien pronounces it for its pains, and tries to imagine himself strutting along Broadway in a battered tin helmet and a pair of yellow tights. Our vices are certainly different. It takes those of the innocent sort to be so ridiculous. 
a self-consciousness lapsing so easily in fine strikes me as so near a relation to amenity, urbanity and general gracefulness that for myself I should be sorry to lay a tax on it lest these other commodities should also cease to come to market. I was rewarded, when I had turned away with my ears full of flour, by a glimpse of an intenser life than the dingy foolery of the Corso. I wandered down by the back streets to the steps mounting to the Capitol, that long inclined plain, rather, broken at every two paces, which is the unfailing disappointment, I believe, of tourists primed for retrospective raptures. Certainly the capital seen from this side isn't commanding. The hill is so low, the ascent so narrow, Michelangelo's architecture in the quadrangle at the top so meagre, the whole place somehow so much more of a molehill than a mountain, that for the first ten minutes of your standing there, Roman history seems suddenly to have sunk through a trapdoor. It emerges, however, on the other side in the forum. And here, meanwhile, if you get no sense of the sublime, you get gradually a sense of exquisite composition. Nowhere in Rome is more colour, more charm, more sport for the eye. The mild incline during the winter months is always covered with lounging sun-seekers, and especially with those more constantly obvious members of the Roman population, beggars, soldiers, monks and tourists. The beggars and peasants lie kicking their heels along that grandest of loafing places, the great steps of the Araceni. The dwarfish look of the capital is intensified, I think, by the neighbourhood of this huge blank staircase, mouldering away in disuse, the weeds thick in its crevices, and climbing to the rudely solemn façade of the church. The sunshine glares on the great unfinished wall, only to light up its featureless disrepair, its expression of conscious, irremediable incompleteness. Sometimes, massing its rusty screen against the deep blue sky, with the little cross and the sculptured porch casting a clear-cut shadow on the bricks, it seems to have even more than a Roman desolation. It confusedly suggests Spain and Africa, lands with no latent risorgimenti, with absolutely nothing but a fatal past. The legendary wolf of Rome has lately been accommodated with a little artificial grotto among the cacti and the palms in the fantastic triangular garden squeezed between the steps of the church and the ascent to the Capitol, where she holds a perpetual levy and draws apparently as powerfully as the Pope himself. Above, in the piazzetta before the stuccoed palace, which rises so jauntily on a basement of thrice its magnitude, are more loungers and knitters in the sun, seated round the massively inscribed base of the statue of Marcus Aurelius. Hawthorne has perfectly expressed the attitude of this admirable figure in saying that it extends its arm with, quote, a command which is in itself a benediction, end quote. 
and out of any statue of king or captain in the public places of the world has more to commend it to the general heart. Irrecoverable simplicity, residing so in irrecoverable style, has no sturdier representative. Here is an impression that the sculptors of the last three hundred years have been laboriously trying to reproduce. But contrasted with this mild old monarch, their prancing horsemen suggest a succession of riding masters taking out young ladies' schools. The admirably human character of the figure survives the rusty decomposition of the bronze and the slight debasement of the art. And one may call it singular that in the capital of Christendom, the portrait most suggestive of a Christian conscience is that of a pagan emperor. You recover in some degree your stifled hopes of sublimity as you pass beyond the palace and take your choice of either curving slope to descend into the forum. Then you see that the little stuccoed edifice is but a modern excrescence on the mighty cliff of a primitive construction whose great squares of porous tufa, as they underlie each other, seem to resolve themselves back into the colossal cohesion of unhewn rock. There are prodigious strangenesses in the union of this airy and comparatively fresh-faced superstructure and these deep-plunging, hoary foundations. And few things in Rome are more entertaining to the eye than to measure the long plumb line which drops from the inhabited windows of the palace with their little over-peeping balconies, their muslin curtains and their bird cages, down to the rugged constructional work of the Republic. In the forum proper, the sublime is eclipsed again, though the late extension of the excavations gives a chance for it. Nothing in Rome helps your fancy to a more vigorous backward flight than to lounge on a sunny day over the railing which guards the great central researches. It says more things to you than you can repeat to see the past, the ancient world, as you stand there, bodily turned up with the spade and transformed from an immaterial, inaccessible fact of time into a matter of soils and surfaces. The pleasure is the same in kind as what you enjoy at Pompeii, and the pain the same. It wasn't here, however, that I found my compensation for forfeiting the spectacle on the Corso, but in a little church at the end of the narrow byway which diverges up the Palatine from just beside the Arch of Titus. This byway leads you between high walls, then takes a bend and introduces you to a long row of rusty, dusty little pictures of the Stations of the Cross. Beyond these stands a small church with a front so modest that you hardly recognise it till you see the leather curtain. I never see a leather curtain without lifting it. It is sure to cover a constituted scene of some sort, good, bad or indifferent. The scene this time was meagre. Whitewash and tarnished candlesticks and mouldy muslin flowers being its principal features. I shouldn't have remained if I hadn't been struck with the attitude of the single worshipper, 
a young priest kneeling before one of the side altars who as i entered lifted his head and gave me a sidelong look so charged with the languor of devotion that he immediately became an object of interest he was visiting each of the altars in turn and kissing the balustrade beneath them he was alone in the church and indeed in the whole region there were no beggars even at the door they were plying their trade on the skirts of the carnival in the entirely deserted place he alone knelt for religion and as i sat respectfully by it seemed to me i could hear in the perfect silence the faraway uproar of the maskers it was my late impression of these frivolous people i suppose joined with the extraordinary gravity of the young priest's face his pious fatigue his groaning prayer and his isolation that gave me just then and there a supreme vision of the religious passion its privations and resignations and exhaustions and its terribly small share of amusement he was young and strong and evidently of not too refined a fibre to enjoy the carnival but planted there with his face pale with fasting and his knees stiff with praying he seemed so stern a satire on it and on the crazy thousands who were preferring it to his way that i half expected to see some heavenly portent out of a monastic legend come down and confirm his choice yet i confess that though i wasn't enamoured of the carnival myself his seemed a grim preference and this forswearing of the world a terrible game a gaining one only if your zeal never falters a hard fight when it does in such an hour to a stout young fellow like the hero of my anecdote the smell of incense must seem horribly stale and the muslin flowers and gilt candlesticks to figure no great bribe and it wouldn't have helped him much to think that not so very far away just beyond the forum in the corso there was sport for the million and for nothing i doubt on the other hand whether my young priest had thought of this he had made himself a temple out of the very elements of his innocence and his prayers followed each other too fast for the tempter to slip in a whisper and so as i say i found a solider fact of human nature than the love of coriandoli one of course never passes the coliseum without paying its one's respects without going in under one of the hundred portals and crossing the long oval and sitting down a while generally at the foot of the cross in the centre i always feel as i do so as if i was seated in the depths of some alpine valley the upper portions of the side toward the escaline look as remote and lonely as an alpine ridge and you raise your eyes to their rugged skyline drinking in the sun and silvered by the blue air with much the same feeling with which you would take in a grey cliff on which an eagle might lodge this roughly mountainous quality of the great ruin is its chief interest beauty of detail has pretty well vanished especially since the high-growing wildflowers have been plucked away by the new government 
whose functionaries surely at certain points of their task must have felt as if they shared the dreadful trade of those who gather sampire. Even if you're on your way to the Lateran, you won't grudge the twenty minutes it will take you on leaving the Colosseum to turn away under the arch of Constantine, whose noble battered bas-reliefs, with the chain of tragic statues, fettered, drooping barbarians, round its summit, I assume you to have profoundly admired, toward the piazzetta of the church of San Giovanni e Paolo, on the slope of the Cilian. No spot in Rome can show a cluster of more charming accidents. The ancient brick apse of the church peeps down into the trees of the little wooded walk before the neighbouring church of San Gregorio, intensely venerable beneath its excessive modernisation, and a series of heavy brick buttresses flying across to an opposite wall overarches the short, steep, paved passage which leads into the small square. This is flanked on one side by the long medieval portico of the Church of the Two Saints, sustained by the eight-time blackened columns of granite and marble. On another rise, the great scarce-windowed walls of a passionist convent, and on the third, the portals of a grand villa, whose tall porter, with his cockade and silver-topped staff, standing sublime behind his grating, seems a kind of mundane St. Peter, I suppose, to the beggars who sit at the church door, or lie in the sun along the farther slope which leads to the gate of the convent. The place always seems to me the perfection of an out-of-the-way corner, a place you would think twice before telling people about, lest you should find them there the next time you are to go. It is such a group of objects, singly and in their happy combination, as one must come to Rome to find at one's house door. But what makes it peculiarly a picture is the beautiful dark red campanile of the church which stands embedded in the mass of the convent. It begins, as so many things in Rome begin, with a stout foundation of antique travertine, and rises high in delicately quaint medieval brickwork, little tiers and apertures sustained on miniature columns and adorned with small cracked slabs of green and yellow marble inserted almost at random. When there are three or four brown-breasted contadini sleeping in the sun before the convent doors, and a departing monk leading his shadow down over them, I think you will not find anything in Rome more sketchable. End of section 14